0: much Smith family really appreciate that. Take your Bible please and turn to the book of John the Gospel of John chapter 1. Merry Christmas to all of you. I hope you've had a, a great day so far and it's it's just uh, wonderful to be in the Lord's house here on Christmas Eve. I hope you join us for this this evening for our Christmas Eve service you're all invited and it will be a, a, a wonderful time around the word We'll read, The Word of God together. We'll sing some Christmas carols together, and we will will have a time of challenge from the Word of God, so I hope you can make it this evening. The Christmas season is really special, and it's a wonderful time, wonderful opportunity. As we look at God's Word, turn with me to, as I said, John chapter 1, and the question that, that, uh, you know, if if you're around, uh, as Christmas time uh, bubbles up, as the time comes, this time of year, you might Uh, have discussions on the news. You might hear uh, articles being written in the newspaper, or you might see them online, of the question of who is Jesus, who was Jesus. And this is the question that divides families. It divides families. It divides nations. It makes an eternity of difference Uh, if people come to the question of who Jesus is. Some people obviously claim Jesus was just a nice teacher. Some people will say, oh, He was a Jewish man living a long time ago, he had some memorable things that he said that were written down, and, you know, we remember Jesus today, but even among those who claim to be Christians, some are divided about the identity of this Lord, and, and so we have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about who Jesus is? That's one of the most important things, the most important thing you can come to grips with today. We're tempted, if we are tempted, to see Jesus as man only, as a man only, we see him as he walked the earth, as he did miracles, as he preached, as he told parables, and eventually died on the cross and was buried. We might think of that of Jesus in that way, but that is insufficient. Because if we got to see who Jesus is, we've got to see him for who he presents himself as. We've had, need to see as who the Bible, who God inspired uh, uh, through the written word of God, for us to know who this. Christ is because I mean think about what the Bible teaches John 14:6 says this that you cannot come unto the father except through Jesus Christ So if you're going to come to the Father through Christ, if Jesus is the one whom you must come through, you must know who he is. If you're going to have a right relationship with God, you cannot do it any other way than through Jesus. So let's look at what the Bible has to tell us about who this Jesus is. Before we do that, let's pray and ask his blessing on our our message today. Father, we ask for your grace, wisdom, and your presence among us. Lord, we need to know uh, your word. We need to know the truth, and we're thankful that the truth does set us free, and so we're thankful here As we gather to look at this passage of Scripture, as we concentrate on your incarnation, the coming of the babe in the manger, and and what an amazing story it is that teaches us about who you are and the depths of your love for us. I pray that today we would be gripped by that fact, that we would be able be willing to tell others about the name of Jesus and the humility of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. John chapter 1. John is a unique book. It's different than the other Gospels. In fact, when you uh, read about Christmas stories, uh, Pastor Drew said this to me. He said, hey, you're preaching on John chapter 1. It's like one of the only Gospels that doesn't have like the Jesus birth in the manger story in it. And, and that is correct. It doesn't tell us about manger in Bethlehem. He doesn't tell us about, uh, about the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. We don't see the visions, the angel visions here with Mary and Joseph like we do in Matthew and in Luke. But here we have a different strategy taken, because while Matthew and Luke focus on the physical birth of Christ, that's where they start his story. What John does in his gospel, he begins his gospel by reaching back into the moments before eternity, or before time began, into eternity past. And it's hard for us to even put words in what we're talking about, like, how do things happen before things begin to happen? How, how do we understand what is going on in eternity past? And so John, in a beautifully written, and in fact, we could probably spend months working through this one passage, we're going to just hit the highlights. We're going to walk across the top of this passage and see the main ideas presented here. We will see Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, the, the Word, as he describes them in John chapter 1. We'll see here the Word, creator of all. The first point I want you to notice today is that, is that the identity of the Word, a God the Creator. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This is a very unusual use of the word word. In fact, in your Bible, you'll notice most of them should have it capitalized because it is a name of Christ. He is using the word logos, which is where we get our word logical, uh, it means word in Greek. It's a very plain word, but it means something more than that. Because nowhere else in the book of John does he describe Jesus using this title, the Word. But here he asks us, he begs us to ask the question, okay, who is this mysterious person, the Word? Who is he talking about? What is this person? Well, first, the first thing we see about the Word is that he is preexistent and he is Deity. Okay, follow along as, as, as you read these couple verses. In the beginning was the Word. It's hard for us to imagine complete emptiness and nothingness. Like, even if I imagine nothing, I'm imagining uh, something, like a dark room. I'm imagining, uh, you know, some absence of something. But here, in the beginning, he's hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1. When he says in the beginning, he's referring to this familiar text, which we all know, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. The Hebrew Scriptures open with this phrase, in the beginning. To talk about, when he talks about the beginning, he's talking about before anything existed. It's in the beginning, the commencement of all things. And when you're reading in the beginning as a Jewish reader, when you read those words, what do you expect to come next? In the beginning what? God. That's what you expect. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say in the beginning God. He says in the beginning was the Word. So let's talk about the word "was." This is a fascinating word. In fact, as you take a, 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 a Greek, if you were to take a Greek class, you would learn that there are several tenses in Greek, and I'm not going to get too technical today, but you have to understand this to understand the full import of what he's saying. That in, like in English, we have different tenses, but Greek has a very specific meanings behind many of their tenses, and, and those things are less, uh, less characteristic of English. And Greek, the, word, the imperfect verb tense, which is what the word was there, has the idea of something that was in the past that has a continuous action. He uses a being word, was. He does not use a word that means to come into being. He uses the word was to indicate he was already existing and was continuing to exist. John does not say, in the beginning, the word became. He does not say that. He says, in the beginning, the word was. There's a huge difference. Jesus is pre existent. There was never a time when he was not. The Son, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, here described as the Word, has no point of origin. He is eternal. And that's what he's saying here in the beginning was eternal the Word. But more than that, more than just being eternal, more than being pre-existent, we use the word pre-existent to mean that He existed before the created world existed. God did not create Jesus, create the Son. The Son existed in eternity. Notice the next phrase, He was in the beginning, or the Word was with God. You see that phrase? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There is He is not alone in His pre-existence. We we see the Son here in the persons of the Trinity relating to one another prior to creation. There's a distinction here between God the Father and God the Son. The distinction is made clear with this phrase: "The Word was with God." In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and this is a very relational word. Pros has, has this idea. The word "with" is the word. Pros has this idea of of relationship in many in many. Um, in many phrases. In fact, let me show you a a verse that references 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, and that word too is the word pros. This idea of face to face is also this idea here of the word was with God. He is there relationally with God, but notice he is further than that. He is deity. He is divine according to his nature. Notice the rest of the verse. The word was with God and the word was God. The Word was God. He is divine. He is deity. He is God according to His nature. He is in every way God. We see this deity of the Word fully fleshed out. He is in the beginning with God. We see the separation of the Father from the Son here, or I should say the distinction of the Father from the Son, and yet still He is preexistent. This is wonderful truth packed into a few verses, a few words. Secondly, we see He is not only preexistent, He is deity, He is the creator of everything. Look at verse 3. All things were made through Him. The Him there, if you want to circle it and write a line back to the word, Word. Who is the Him there? It is the Word. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. He is the one who created all things, the Son the second person of the Trinity. We see this uh, uh, in the Scripture in the Old Testament. We find that God is the one who created all things. Look at this verse from um, Isaiah chapter 40. He says, lift up your eyes on high. See who has created these things. Who brings in the host by number? He calls them by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by God. Have you not known... Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God, the Lord, Yahweh, the Old Testament covenant name for God, is the one who created all things. And yet John is telling us the Word is the one who created all things. He is the creator of all. As we keep going, we see he was also uh, in, in Psalm 33, 6, how did the Lord create What did he use to create? You remember the story from Genesis chapter 1, and the Lord spoke, right? He said, let there be light, and there was light. The Lord created all things with his voice. Look at this verse, Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. The Old Testament is clear that it is Yahweh the Lord who creates all things. So we see in the New Testament, we see that Jesus Himself, or the Son of God, the pre incarnate Christ, He is the one who creates all things. Colossians chapter one, I read at the beginning of this service. He is the image of the invisible God. The image there means the express the the, the uh, demonstration or the picture of the firstborn over all creation. For by him, by him, Jesus. All things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things. And in Him all things consist or hold together. You see the power of the Son, the power of the Son of God, here the One who created. Even in Hebrews chapter 1, we have a similar phrase. He says, He has in last days spoken to us by His Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. It is through the Son that the world is made. So, here in these first couple of verses, the identity of the Word is laid out for us. He is the, He is in the beginning. He's before all things. Therefore, He is uncreated. He is uncreated. He is with God in the beginning, therefore He is distinct from the Father in some sense, and He is relationally with God the Father, but we see at the end of of this passage as well, He is in every sense God. He is fully God and the Creator of all things. This Word that we see laid out here in John chapter 1, what did He do? What was His mission? We'll see this in the second part of this passage. The mission of the Word is that He is a bringer of light, a bringer of light. Verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It's amazing to me, if you read um, Genesis, you'll notice that the first thing that God created is light. Of course, He created the heavens and the earth, and it says on the first day, God said, let there be light. And so John, again echoing that, he says, he is life, and in him was the light of men. Life existed in the Word. Now, for all of us, life is something given to us as a gift, right? We don't have life in ourselves. We have life because we were birthed. I didn't have any choice about whether I wanted to be born or not. I was birthed, right? That's just what happened. I, uh, that is how it happened. I, I was given life by God, given life. Uh, by my parents, if you want to call that physically. We do not have life in ourselves. I cannot bestow life upon anything. I cannot make anything living. There's nothing, there's no life power within me that I can transfer to something else. So, yet, God, Christ here, it says, the Son, in Him was life, and this life became the light of men. He gave light to a dark place. What does light do? Light dispels the darkness. Light shines in the dark places. As, as He comes into the world like a light in a dark place, He shines in the dark places, and the world is a place of darkness, but notice how He reveals Himself to the world. Without the revelation of God, we will be completely helpless and hopeless. Without the revelation of Christ as a light, we would not be able to understand His purposes for us. We would not be able to see. God has revealed Himself through the written Word of the Bible. We have revelation. We have light coming into a dark place. Darkness is, is not really a thing itself. It's an absence of light, and it's natural that darkness should be dispelled by the light. I, I, it's important for us. I mean, how many times have I gotten up in the middle of the night and, 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 and stubbed my toe on something because I did not have light. I had darkness in my room. How many of you have done that? Many times. So what do we do now? Now, the first thing I do is I grab, I used to have flashlights. I don't have a flashlight anymore. What do I have? I have my cell phone. I take my cell phone out. Turn on my flashlight app. Everything's turning into an app, apparently. Turn on a flashlight app, and, and boom, I have light. And the light dispels the darkness. It doesn't have to work at it. It just dispels the darkness. And now I can see where I'm going. Now I can see what I'm doing. And this is the picture that John gives us of what Jesus does. He comes and he dispels the darkness. He, he puts away the darkness. But notice what it says here. The darkness did not comprehend the light. That's fascinating. What was there to comprehend? What is there to understand? It might be talking here about revelation, about truth, but uh, this word is fascinating. This word can mean to seize or to grasp something. We use this all the time. Uh, If I'm talking to you and I say, "Did, did you get what I understood? And you're like, I mean, did you get what I said? Did you get it? And you're like, what's there to grab? I don't understand. How do I get something that you're speaking? No, no, no. Metaphorically, we would say, did you get it? Meaning, did you understand it? Or I said, how, how did you grasp this concept? And we're not talking about you literally reaching out with your hand and, and grasping something in the air. We're talking about metaphorically your mind being able to understand and grasp the concept. And so that's what this word often means. It means to comprehend. And so when it says the light came to the darkness, the darkness could not grasp it, could not comprehend it. But there's another alternative reading to this word that might make even more sense in this context. And it's, it's a similar impact. You might have it in the margin of your Bible. Depends on what translation you have. It says the light came in the darkness, but the darkness could not overcome it. It could not grab it and destroy it. The same word also means to violently attempt to overcome something. So the light comes in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. It cannot overwhelm it. The light is too powerful. Later in John 12, Jesus uses this same word wording when He says, um, I I don't know if I have this on the… I probably should give you this. It's a life-bringing light. John chapter 12, Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Same word. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Jesus warns us about darkness opposing the light. Jesus is bringing a life-giving light. If you're someone reading this passage for the very first time, maybe that's you, or maybe if you're just reading this, imagine putting yourself in that situation. You might have to think to yourself, okay, okay, who is this talking about? Who is this word character? We haven't got a name yet. If you've got this mysterious title, the Word, and what are your options? What are your possibilities? It could be someone like Elijah or Elisha, you know, great prophets of God. They go and they dispel darkness. They, they do miracles. They preach the Word of the Lord. Could it be David the king? We know David uh, was the chosen one of God, and he did a lot for the Lord. And could it be someone like John the Baptist? We don't know yet. What's important is that this one who's coming would need to be witnessed. There would need to be someone who would go ahead of the Word, who would tell people what they should expect to see. And that's exactly what we find. We have witnessed as the light in verses 6 through 9. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light or about the light That was the true light, giving light to every man coming into the world. God sent one ahead of him who would identify him, who would prepare hearts for him, and would lead people to him. We know it's John the Baptist. John the Baptist does this role, and we see this played out in all the Gospels. Teach us about John's role. In verse 7 and 8, it tells us that John was sent from God. He had a job to be a witness about the light. The witness is someone who stands and identifies They say, this is the one whom you're looking for. This is the light. In fact, we see John doing that exact thing in John chapter 1 and verse 29. It says the next day, uh, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John did, Identify Jesus as this one who is the light bringer. What do we know about this true light? Look at verse 9. He says, this light is one who gives light to every man coming into the world. Another way of reading this phrase is, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. The world did not, the Word did not uh, stay in eternity. He somehow enters the world and gives light to people. So what are people's responses to the light? Let's look at verses 10 through 13. We see um, the responses to the light brought. He was in the world. The world was made through him, and the world did not know him. First, the response of the world in verse 10. How did the world respond? He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. We don't really know yet how it was that he was in the world. The Bible doesn't tell us. We'll find out in a minute. But it tells us that as he came and was in the world, that he made, the world did not recognize him. It did not know him. He was in the world, the response from the world. Secondly, he created the world, the world that was made through his power, through his agency, that did not know him. He enters the world. They don't recognize him. Secondly, notice the response of his own people. He came to his own possessions. He came to that which he owned, that which belonged to him. And I, I think I, I was wrestling over what exactly he's referencing here. It might be his throne. He came to that which belonged to him, his throne, his position, his place, his nation. And when he comes, rather than being received, he's rejected. The response of his own people is to reject. How do they reject him? Well, number one, we see this in the manger, like right, right from the beginning when Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem, they are seeking a place to stay. And what is the message they get from the innkeeper? No room. So Jesus is born in a manger. I thank you so much for the song that was sung, for the splendor that Jesus left, the Son left in eternity to come and be in a cattle stall, in a feeding trough. There he is with animals. This is not fitting a king. He was rejected by the people. The people who should have received him and welcomed him didn't do anything of the sort. There was no red carpet. There were no news cameras. There was no special greeting. The only people who were told about this were commoners like the shepherds, right? They come into town. And as, a shepherd, as the shepherds come, they're the ones who receive. They also did not receive Jesus, not only in the manger, but as a prophet or as a teacher. You notice that the people received Him, but the Jewish religious leaders did not receive His teachings or believe anything He said. They wanted to overcome Him. They wanted to get rid of Him. But what's the response of the believing? Sorry. What's the response of the believing, verse 12? Focus on this verse with me. If you look out at your Bible, it says this, but as many as received Him, there's the contrast to rejecting, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right, the power, the authority to become children of God to those who believe on His name. Okay, here's where our response to the Word is laid out, how we should respond. Here's the hope. Here is the contrast. Those who should have received Jesus did not receive Him, but there are some who do receive Him. There are some who do welcome Him. There are some who gladly believe and take Him at His Word. Notice this, God does not ask you to reach up to heaven. God does not ask you to go to heaven on your own. God does not ask you to accomplish great things to earn His favor. He doesn't do that. God asks only that you believe Him and take Him at His word. Isn't this sometimes the hardest thing to do is to take God at His word? To listen to God and believe Him and obey Him. To believe God is to listen to God when it might be that people would mock you, people might scorn you, a husband or a wife might roll their eyes at you, yet this is all God has asked of you, to receive Him, to take Him, to take him, from his, uh, take him at His word. Look at the verse again. It says, there is no limit, as many as receive Him. Him. There's no limit to this. Whoever will receive him can receive him. Uh, Another word in the Bible that's used sometimes is the word whosoever. The picture is is whoever wants to come in can come. And here he says, as many as received him. To those who receive him, whoever they are, God gives a specific legal authority to be called a child of God. I've had the privilege of being in um, uh, courtrooms uh, with families that adopted kids. And that's a neat moment because, you know, at that moment, that's when the judge legally declares a child to be part of a family. Uh, we've had this tradition whenever someone adopts someone in the church, our, our pastors will go and will be there to rejoice in that. And that is a very monumentous occasion. I mean, it is, it is wonderful. It's amazing to see that at the, at the striking of a gavel, a person is put into a relationship, a legal re- relationship with a family. And that's what God, God talks about our coming into His family as adoption. We are called His children. We once were His enemies, and now we're His friends. He adopts us, and we get the rights and the privileges of being a child of God. But this is not just for every person who's born. In fact, He says that. And to as many as do what? What does the rest of the verse say? As many as believe on Him. Look at the last part of that phrase. As many as received Him, to them gave He the right to become the children of God, as many as believe on His name. This gives us a description of what it means to receive Him. This is called a positive. It tells us how it is, that how do you receive God? Well, this is what it looks like, as many as believe on His name. His name means His character, His identity, and this is the hard part, the hardest pill to swallow, the most difficult thing to believe about Jesus. You know, it's easy to believe that Jesus was a historical figure. I mean, there are people who deny Christ uh, and yet believe He was a historical figure. Every uh, reputable scholar in history will believe that Jesus was a historical figure. They know that He existed. That's not the hard part. The hard part is believing what John says here, not only that He is a man, but that this man is the very Son of God, that He is the Word that was with God and was God. It's easy to believe that Jesus of Nazareth existed 2,000 years ago. The question is, does He exist today? Is He alive today? That's the question you have to wrestle with, because the Bible teaches us clearly that Jesus not only died on the cross, but He rose again, and that He is alive and He exists today. And we see this, this laid out for us here in black and white. Now, the third thing I wanted to show you from this passage is that there is a, a, the humility of the Word. We haven't gotten to the details yet about how it is that this eternity crashed into our, 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 our realm of, of time and of space. How could it be that the eternal Son of God came? How does that work well, John tells us in John 1.14, and he shows us a humility of the Word wrapped up in the humanity of the Word. He says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. How does He show His humility? How does the Word, the eternal Son, demonstrate His humility? Well, first, He demonstrates His humility to take on flesh. Earlier, I mentioned this word was. I said in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember that? We talked about that. And the word was has as the idea of an imperfect. It means in the past with continual action, and it's a being verb. I me, which means to be. In the beginning was the Word. It's very clear that He existed in the past and continues to exist, that there was not a beginning point. But when He uses the Word in John 1.14, He changes His Word. Instead of using the word was, He doesn't say the Word was flesh. He now uses a different word. He uses the Word became. He says the Word at a point in time, there was a moment in time when the Word became flesh. Real human flesh. There are many heresies in church history. Some heresies about Christ focus on this. They say, well, Jesus was just a spirit. He wasn't really flesh. These are those who believe that Jesus appeared to be flesh and bones, but, oh, no, see, Jesus, the Son, could ne- God could never take on human flesh because human flesh is too dirty and nasty and gross and full of sin. And no, God could never ever be taking on real human flesh. And there are those who would say, well, there was a man named, named Jesus, but he really wasn't God. Those are both heresies that have had their you know, traditions in, in church history. But, but the Bible teaches that not only is Jesus the eternal Son, the Word made flesh. He, he is the Word eternally. He is also the Word made flesh, real human flesh, real human bones. He became flesh, breaking into this finite world in which we live. And this is the Christmas story. And this verse is wrapped up the Christmas story of Luke chapter 2, when Mary, brings jo- uh, Mary and Joseph bring the baby and the manger. That is the babe. That is the Word made flesh. When, when the, when the uh, shepherds worship the baby in the manger, they're worshiping the Word made flesh. And when the wise men come to the house and they bring the gifts, they're worshiping, they're bowing before the Word made flesh. And when Simeon raises Jesus up, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He is worshiping the Word made flesh. This is the Word of God taking on human flesh. And this is described also in Philippians chapter 2, by emptying Himself, as we're told. The, The Son emptied Himself, By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Jesus, the eternal or the Son, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh and emptied His priorities and His privileges of being at the right hand of God, came so He could be with you and me here on this earth and to walk on this earth. The shocking humility involved in the great God of all humbling Himself to be a human with all the discomforts that come along with it, think how quickly we complain about our discomforts when something isn't just so. How, how quickly it is a, a chair being slightly uncomfortable becomes a, an irritant for us. Think about how quickly a food that just is a little bit too cold, we send it back. Think about all the things we do because it's just not quite to our liking. Think of how, this, how quickly we become irritated with the discomforts of life. Think about how we respond when we're treated with less than the respect that we think we deserve. Someone slights us. Someone steps in front of us in a line. Someone makes a rude comment to us. We get overlooked for a job promotion. One of our family members says a really true and hurtful thing that we don't want to talk about. Now, consider the severity of the humility required for the pre-existing creator of the world to humble himself, to be born in a cattle stall. This is the glory of Christmas. This is why we worship the Lord. This is the beauty of Jesus' coming. This is why we celebrate Christmas like we do. We should make a big deal about Christmas because we're talking about the Word made flesh, and He had the humility to, to come and take on flesh, and He had the humility to dwell among men and dwell among people. John 1:14. He dwelt among us And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, whose humility did not stop at His birth. He dwelt and lived among us. Emmanuel, God with us, God was here. The eternal Son of God lived among men and women, walking the streets, eating with them, healing their diseases, pointing them to the one who could solve their greatest needs. And as flesh, it says, we beheld His glory. The invisible God made visible, revealed to us. He did not simply appear to be human. He was not a ghost or an apparition. He is truly God in the flesh, real human, son of Abraham, son of Adam, son of David. And in fact, look at the bottom of your page, or you can look at your Bible, John one eighteen. I wish we could go all the way to verse 18. We don't have time for it, but I want to at least point out verse 18. Because he says this, no one has seen God, he's speaking here of the Father, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared or explained Him. The, the, the importance of that verse cannot be over, this, overstated. This verse is teaching us that when people saw God in the Old Testament, when people saw the appearance of God, what they were seeing was the second person of the Trinity. They were seeing a pre-incarnate Christ. Here He is every time people see God. They're seeing Him. He is the one who declares Him. This is the reason why God gives all these instructions about things like, Thou shalt not make a graven image of me. Do not draw a picture of me. Do not make an image of me because I will give you my own image. It's Jesus. Jesus is the perfect explanation of the Father before us. Fully god fully man. He is the unique Son of the Father. The only begotten is this picture of one who is unique. Of, it, 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 he is unique. He is, he, is, he is different. He is untouched by sin, does not have a fallen nature. He's fully God and fully man, but He is the unique one of God. And it says that as He is the unique one of God, I want you to notice His nature. It says He was full of grace and truth. I have two words here, grace. Um, it, back again to verse 14 full of grace and truth. This, this is amazing. As, as I studied it this week, I was overwhelmed by this. Paul, you know, uses the word grace to often talk about unmerited favor. He says the grace of God is, is what we don't deserve. But if you look at what John uses in his gospel, especially here, paired with the word grace, I think what he's actually pointing to is something slightly different. Where well, the words grace and truth are the covenant language of God with His people. Covenant is an agreement between two parties that involves obligations and blessings. So, God made covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with David. God made covenant with His people. And in His covenant, the word hesed, or in your Bible, probably covenant love or loving kindness or mercies, depending on translation. It's hard for us in English to encapsulate the the mention of this word. It has the idea of a love that involves commitment. And God made this covenant committed love to His people. And here's what, God, what John says about Jesus. He is full of that, full of grace, and full of truth. The word truth is the idea of faithfulness, fulfilling what needs to be done. In both cases, Jesus, or John is saying that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant relationship with us. That coming as He did, to establish the new covenant. He fulfills God's covenant relationship with us. Isn't it amazing the baby in the manger was not just another child? He is the eternal Word. And in John 1, we get the picture of this baby born in Bethlehem. We see His identity. He's the eternal Word that should motivate us to worship the newborn King. We see His mission of bringing light to a dark place. As we think about His 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 identity, we should worship him. As we think about his mission, this challenges us to ask ourselves, have we rejected that light, or have we accepted the light? How have you responded to the mission of Jesus Christ? Thirdly, we saw his humility, and we think about the humility of the Word, God in the flesh, humbling himself. This does two things. First, it softens our heart to see how great his love is for you or for me. I've been overwhelmed before when I've noticed how people have gone out of their way for me. Um, people go out of their way to help with something, and I think, oh, that's really sweet. Oh, that's really kind. You didn't have to do that. You almost feel bad. Like, please don't do that again. <laughs> you know, don't, 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 don't treat me like that. It makes me feel awkward. Like, going out of your way for me, it makes me feel awkward. It makes me feel like I, you know, I, I don't, I don't deserve it. Don't, you know, thank you, but we've all felt that it one way or another. And when we see the humility of Jesus, the one who came, it softens our heart. We recognize how much He loves us, that He he gave up all that to come take on human flesh and be with us. And and secondly, I think it not only softens our hearts to love Him more and be full of gratitude, it also motivates us to be humble. Because if He can do that, why can't I serve in the nursery? Why can't I help with a children's ministry? Why can't I straighten things or pick up stuff? Why, do, why can't I do something behind the scenes where no one will know my name, no one will know I did anything, but I'm doing it to serve the Lord? I can do it with humility because He was humble. We see the wonderful Lord who came, and at Christmas time we get to rejoice in that, which is why in just a moment I'm going to close in prayer, and I beg of you, if you don't know this Christ, if you've not yet received Him, Do not yet claim this truth. God is there before you in God's Word. As many as received Him, Jesus says to those He gave the right, or John says to those He gave the right to become the children of God, I beg of you, would you receive Christ? But in a moment, after we do that, after we pray, we're going to sing another Christmas song, and this one we're going to sing is Joy to the World. And the reason we're going to sing this song as we close is the words say, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King." Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Is your heart prepared for the Lord? Let's pray. Father, we ask you today, as we've talked about your identity as the Word, God in the flesh, as we are overwhelmed with your humility and your mission, your identity here has just given to us something far beyond our imagination. We could never understand this unless you gave it to us there in your Word. Uh, what a wonderful picture of your love and your humility that you came, God in the flesh. Father, I pray that you would warm our hearts to you today, and if there's someone here who does not yet know you as Savior, that they would receive you, they would be ready to receive you, and they would receive you gladly, and that we might rejoice and have joy at your coming. We look forward to your second coming, Lord, we will. Re- you will receive us. And so we look forward to that day, but until then, Lord, we ask You to please help us to live a life of humility that reflects Your character and reflects Your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to turn to 199. Sing, joy to the world. I beg of you, sing with all your joy in your heart. Sing with excitement.